Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. So in our view, great would be when everyone can find the best place to put their money to work to whatever cause they want. It could be investing, it could be protecting their family, it could be long-term, it could be non-profit, it could be helping a local business. Today in the world, there is Google to find information, right? There's Amazon to find products. But what about financial opportunities? There is no one place to find financial opportunities. We want to be able to create that for the world where anyone who's looking to put their money to work has a place to put their money to work. And anybody who's looking for help in building whatever business or growing whatever they want to grow is able to meet these people who are looking to put their money to work. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I am Bernard Leung. What is the future of wealth management as software is eating the world? With me today, Caesar Sengupta, CEO and co-founder of Arthur Finance. Since the last time we spoke, you were still in Google and now you are an entrepreneur. How are you doing? Bernard, I'm doing well, surviving. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Yeah, so what was the inspiration of deciding to finally be a startup founder? It's funny. It's been something I've thought about for a very, very long time. In fact, the funny thing was my original intention in joining Google was to find a group of great people, uh, work for a couple of years, you know, learn a few of the basics and then leave and start a company. The funny thing was I found the right set of people and I've but Google just kept giving me such amazing opportunities one after the other that we together as a group got to build many products, Chromebooks, Google Pay, Google Files, a whole set of different products over the course of our time there. And the same set of people actually left together with me and we are all start, we've all started out of finance. Wow. So it's been something I think that's been in the making for a good 20 years. And finally, you know, we, we, the timing was right, the situation was right, and we were able to join. Well, you have an illustrious career working with Google, and I think you used to work with Sundar Bichai, the current CEO of Google. Going from just product management all the way to taking over the entire product stack to enable the next billion, right? What are the lessons that you can share about your career journey to my younger audience out there? Um, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate in life on a number of crowns, but the area that I consider myself most fortunate is about people. As I mentioned, like I joined Google to find an amazing group of people that I could, you know, learn from, hang out with, and just basically build great stuff together with. You know, I was reporting into Sundar way in 2007, and the team that he had formed around him was exactly this kind of a uh, set of people. So biggest lesson I learned was find an amazing group of people, hold on to them with everything you can, and try to make sure you're worthy of their you know, worthy of their respect, worthy of their wanting to have you be part of that group. And that's sort of been something that actually served me incredibly well over the last 20 odd years. Mm. So that comes to the main subject of the day. I want to talk about 
Arthur Finance and the Digital Family Office with you. So maybe to start, can you describe kind of the total market opportunity for wealth management business and also what is the inspiration behind Arthur Finance and so, so they can capture that total opportunity? Yeah. So look, the wealth management business can be cut many ways. It's a trillions and trillions of, you know, hundreds of trillions dollar worth opportunity. But let me focus on a particular category that has largely been ignored for a while and I think isn't very well served which is what we call sort of the professional affluent category, right? And this is the largest, highest growing category. It's essentially think about professionals, most people like us, you know, who kind of weren't born rich, but we worked hard, we were fortunate in life, we had the right education, mm-hmm. and over our course of life, we've created wealth. And this, these people tend to have wealth from anywhere between a million in net worth to, you know, 10, 20, 25 million. If you just take a subset of that, one to five million, or, or you know, roughly two to two to five million, two to six million. There are about six hundred million people in the world who fall into that category, and two hundred and eighty trillion dollars of wealth in them. Wow! So this is a massive category. But the interesting part is this audience has not really been very well served by anyone, hmm. because you only get to you know become or get all the facilities from a private bank once you get above this. You know, some private banks may take somebody with five million. But really, in order to be able to provide them with the right kind of service, it requires a much higher, higher wealth limit. You know, and very quickly, as most of us realize, regular banking and just savings accounts and, you know, doing some brokerage, Mm. buying and selling of stock is not really the right way to be growing your wealth. And so that's essentially the category that we are targeting. And it's, it's a category that is us. You know, that's the life that we lived. So you're building something for yourself. We are building something for ourselves. And that's how it came about. You know, we, as we were growing through the ranks at Google, as we were gaining more wealth, we would talk to each other and we would keep finding out things from each other. And you know, at some point it felt like, wow, there are all these financial superpowers in the world that we just don't know about, right? right? How do we, how do we find out more about this? How do we get access? And then some of us started working with private banks or, you know, started using private banks and suddenly realized, wow, there's a quantum leap from, you know, E-Trade and Robinhood and buying and selling your stocks to like suddenly getting private banking. And, you know, the, the sophistication of the tools, the insight and the knowledge and the access to products is just a quantum step, you know, above anything else we had had. But we also realized that, A, it was you know, an extremely services manual kind of a system. You know, you work through great advice, but everything done on paper, everything done sort of in Mm. advice. And as technologists, we were like, wait, this can be so much better, right? Why can't I look at the choices of the products and the funds in front of me? Why can't I make decisions looking at the data, right? Why do I have to talk to so many people? Uh, And why does it have to be so slow? And the second thought was, hey, if we apply technology to the space, we can take these incredible, powerful financial superpowers and bring them to millions more people. Mm. So at some point, we used to keep debating this. And then, you know, during COVID, we started talking to each other and realized that the timing was just right. You know, a lot of the technology, machine learning, AI, were starting to get mature enough to the point where you could take existing financial knowledge and just start democratizing it. So that's, that's essentially what drove us to create this. So then what is the vision and mission of Arthur Finance and how does it align with the trends that you talk about? Yeah. So our mission is to democratize private banking or to democratize family offices, right? Mm -hmm. Like exactly the same things that a private bank or uh, a family office would do for an ultra wealthy. We want to start 
people off with much earlier in their lives, mm. right? Rather than waiting for, you know, many of your audience will create amazing companies. They will go on to lead phenomenal companies. I mean, Sundar is now the CEO of Alphabet, but Sundar was not born the CEO of Alphabet. He is a professional who at some point was someone like us, right? And we would want to capture people like that and get them and help them when they're in their 30s, mm. right? Way earlier in their lives, when you can still have a massive meaningful difference. Look, in the, in the world of finance, there is one very big secret. It's called compounding. It's actually not a secret. It's like, it's a superpower, right? right? So the earlier you can get started with compounding, the more powerful it is. So that's at some level, like, democratize these financial superpowers, educate our users, give them access to those, you know, those products and capabilities, and just help them through the course of their lives as they're busy focusing on their careers and their families. You know, Arta is there as their financial, financial so helper. How does Arta Finance view, say, the traditional family office, right? with business models is typically very tied predominantly to private banking. So, you know, we think they are they're very valuable services. They provide incredible service to their clients. It's just that they're able to serve very few clients, yeah. right? And so that's, I think, the, the key thing that we are trying to solve, which is take many of the stuff that they've done and then scale it using technology. So today, Arda is essentially a full-fledged private bank. You know, you can come in, you can see all the products, you can learn, you can get access to alternative assets, you can get access to sophisticated public market strategies. Of course, you can buy and sell stock. You can get access to a number of family office services. We are live in the US right now, so mm. it's very focused on those kinds of services, tax and estate, tax strategies using life insurance, you know, ways to use structured products and options to create the right financial outcomes for yourself. Essentially everything a private bank would do, but in a very digital forward manner. Obviously there are experts in case you want to talk to somebody about which private equity fund to invest in. You can talk to our folks, but you also have the product in front of you on the web, on your phone, where you and your spouse, your friends can look at things, decide whether it works for you and make an informed decision on how you want to progress your life. Mm. So if I read it correctly, you are currently dis disrupting or maybe you come to a particular group of professionals that is actually underserved and couldn't get into private banking. So if I were to ask, say, a normal two professionals, they, they're married, you know, they work for like top tech companies, then they just basically, can they just register with you? Yeah. With all the standard KYC, well, some standard KYC, know your customer because yeah. I have an audience who may not know what KYC means in the in the language of banking, right? Yeah, so we're open to accredited investors right now. Mm. Uh, these are regulatory constraints. And so accredited investors in the US is $250,000 a year in annual, $300,000 as joint or a million in net assets. In Singapore, the limits are slightly different because in Sing dollars, it's $300,000 and two million in, yeah. in, liquid, in, in assets. But it's something that, as you know, once two professionals get married, they're accredited investors very quickly. Arda is free to join. There are no minimum limits. So people can just open an account, go to Arda Finance. And, you know, once you're in, you can see all the powerful capabilities that a private bank would offer you. But now that's in the tip of your fingers. So you have a very strong digital advanced team, I would say, from all ex-Googlers or maybe from the other tech companies as well. So how does technology being brought into say, in such a traditional field like banking, I'm sure that there are different things that you want to 
jump over, you know, the fence and then you need to figure out how to even integrate with regulatory requirements. I'm sure that that's not an easy feat. Oh, it, it's not an easy feat and it's taken us, you know, a couple of years to build this out. But, you know, we're fortunate to have an incredibly capable team. One of my co-founders led Google Pay globally as the engineering leader. Yeah. Google Pay, as you know, has, you know, hundreds of millions of users around the world in 80 countries extremely regulated space. Payments tends to be very regulated. KYC, AML, these are like That's right. things that we've done for many, many years. Another of my co-founders helped build Gmail and was engineering lead for Gmail for many years and then was engineering lead at YouTube for many years. So these are people who've built systems at scale that have to have high trust, high privacy, high integrity. I led all FinTech at Google for a number of years, including our payments infrastructure, all money flowing through it for any commercial reasons. So the space we're very familiar with of how to deal with the regulatory requirements, the responsibility of dealing with money. And so we've had to build this out. We've built most of it out at this point. We have a number of users who are actively using it. There are a number of people who've moved all their assets in. All of our assets are already on Arta. So, you know, it's taken us a while, but it's exciting to finally have a, a digital platform that is integrated across alternative assets, public markets, family office services, and together gives you an experience that, you know, is kind of like the rest of your life. I mean, you order food on your phone, you, mm. you know, make payments on your phone. Why shouldn't you be dealing with the wealth on your phone? So while you are building that generative AI came along, right? And it's now like a new electricity is going to change the way how computing is going to happen. So any thoughts on, say, in the AI space, how is it being brought into a space like wealth yeah. management? So, you know, what's really funny is Arda started in 2021. And at that point, we didn't want to call ourselves an AI company because AI among the technocratic, tech, you know, sophisticated people was sort of like this thing that people use for marketing terms, right? That's right. We were machine learning <laughs> and we were heavily using machine learning. And a lot of our strategies use quant methodologies, so quant finance methodologies that have existed in the finance world for a while. But then using machine learning, we were democratizing it and bringing those to millions of people. Then, of course, generative AI comes along and now suddenly everybody's an AI company. Yeah. So I joke that we were an AI company before AI became sexy. <laughs> we're, doing, we're looking at using large language models in a number of ways. I think still very early. We, we experimented with fine-tuning our own models. Again, we are in the financial space, so the quality of the data matters a lot. Explainability to our users matters a lot. One of the interesting things about generative AI is it's kind of magic, right? Yeah. It, and it's got this vagueness of sometimes right, sometimes not. So you've got to be very, very confident of the data that's going in, making sure people understand the value and also being able to explain. So I don't have anything specific to share mm. right now. We've got a bunch of interesting demos and things that we're going, but in the next few months, we're hoping to like launch and bring a lot of our LLM stuff out. I'm sure because I think it's still pretty young and a lot that we're currently seeing is a revolves around text. I'm sure there are things like video and even vision where generative AI is pretty important on. But I think maybe think about, say, a few years back, just before generative AI, there's also like personalized AI recommender systems. Do you all take into account to personalize for the customers that you serve? Uh, we would definitely will be. At this point, to be honest, we are not doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Our focus over the last two years was really building out the platform. So today, the product is, you know, gives you, helps you learn, helps you get access, helps you uh, be able to operationalize stuff in a very easy way. 
I think over the next few months, we are going to get much more into the the recommendation systems. I'm actually personally very excited because, yeah, you know, I was into collaborative filtering and personalized recommendations like 20 years back at grad school. And so it's exciting to see some of those systems actually being working now, you know, yeah. the theory at that point. Agree with you because I used to basically help companies in Southeast Asia when I was with uh, Amazon to actually deal with the recommendation services engines for their e-commerce, video streaming, and everything else. One interesting part is in wealth management, typically in private banking, there is a customer relations person. It's like the spock. He would go to the family, maybe to individuals of the, yourself, maybe, and your wife, and then they would talk about all the products they have. I, I guess now you have to move from that particular paradigm into a digital-first paradigm. How do you all think about that type of situations where these particular customers may have certain special needs. Uh, like I remember when I was with Singapore Post, I handled the uh, high-end mail service and I have someone's father brought bringing the son in and said that, you know, this is a special mailbox for you and you're supposed to sign this and then the mail will come to this place and then every now and then you'll just come and collect and it's done in a concierge manner. It's actually one of the really... Uh, unspoken service, but it's a very, very interesting. Cool. Yeah. So, how would you think about for taking that that particular old way of doing things and now bring into this new world? Yeah, I actually don't think of it as old or new. Mm-hmm. It's funny we don't think of ourselves as disruptors because we are creating, offering a product to a set of people who have not been served. So, to start out with, the way we think about our platform is we're actually flipping how you use digital and human. We put sort of a very digital forward platform in front of users, but at any point of time they want to talk to anyone, we have a whole set of experts at Arda that they can talk to. If, for example, you're trying to decide between which public market strategy that Arda offers Mm. would be the right allocation for that pool of money, you can talk to someone on our side. So it's this interesting combination of people and technology that I think is most interesting. But I think what's most interesting for us is we've historically always been a team that is very ecosystem oriented. When we built Chromebooks, we built an entire ecosystem of OEMs, app providers that, you know, targeted the education space. And together, not only did we create value for Google, but also huge value for many of our OEM partners. Similarly, did Google Pay, it started off as a consumer product, but today, like all the banks, all the, you know, many financial companies actually have an entire ecosystem around this. So with Arta, we've started with this you know, direct model, but we're quickly evolving into the ecosystem model, where if, for example, there's a financial advisor who has a set of families that they are helping, supporting for a while, they can use Arta. They get access to more products. They're able to offer a digital experience to their end users and to their clients and are able to you know, add that unique value-added service that really an experienced financial advisor can provide. Mm. So in the US, we're talking to a few financial providers who are trying this out in that kind of a manner. But over the course of this year, we will we will actually see many more financial advisors doing this. Mm. Interestingly, we we're soon to launch in Singapore. We have in principle approval. We're working on a bunch of stuff to be able to launch. But at a global level, we're actually talking to a number of banks too. Because obviously, there are certain segments and markets where Arta will provide the service directly to users. But the world is a very large place. As I said, 600 million people. We can't go to 600 million people without help from partners. So in a number of countries, we are talking to you know large banks, financial institutions about taking all of Arta's platform, 
essentially in a white label manner mm. and being able to bring them to their existing customers or to new customers. And then, you know, the bank in that country provides financial advisors who understand the people in that country, the needs of that people in that country or that particular segment. And we are able to bring the technology, the financial products in a highly streamlined manner. Mm. So I see that if essentially you're also open to private banks using the other finance as an offering to the customers as well. Oh, we're talking to a number of private banks right now. Ah, okay. Because for the interesting part is, you know, we've as we've come into this private banking industry or the family office industry, this desire to serve everyone has been present from in everyone. Look, none of the private banks or the family offices want to exclude people. Everybody wants more customers. <laughs> the challenge is without technology, you can't do it profitably. So as a business, you know, there is no... There hasn't been a way before this to be able to reach those people. So, you know, we now have created that way. So we're talking to a number of partners to help them reach many, many more people. So what is the one thing you know now about the intersection of technology and wealth management business that very few do that? There's actually a few things. I think depending on the country, there are specific financial sort of, you know, nuggets of wisdom that you, you know, you would hear, which we just didn't know. And once you know, and then you see that being instanti instantiated with technology, uh, you can just see the immense power. You know, I know you have uh, a number of listeners in the US. A lot of people in the US don't know that you can use permanent life insurance. These are like not the regular life insurance that most of us are used to, mm. but this category of life insurance that's much higher premiums. But essentially, it's, they're designed in many ways to be very, very tax efficient investment vehicles. So anything you ins put inside them immediately gets shielded from tax, right? Many people did not know this. Another example that we are just uh, launching in the US is called direct indexing. So, you know, the regular people buy ETFs, but the ultra rich don't buy the ETFs. They buy all the components of the ETFs and they have systems that buy and sell correlated assets to generate tax losses, right? We can do this now for a much, much smaller amount. You know, the private banks have offered this to their clients for hundreds, if not millions of dollars, we can do this for a few, you know, few tens of thousands of dollars because of technology, because of scale, use of machine learning. And so these are amazing secrets. One of the things in Singapore that a lot of people are not aware of or outside the US, and I know a lot of your listeners are outside the US, is as soon as you hold US stocks, you are exposed to US estate taxes. That's right. Right. And nobody's helped solve this. So we're trying to figure out how we can help, you know, the private banks obviously mm -hmm. will help their clients. They will set up stuff for them. Correct. Family offices will set up stuff for them. But what about the rest of us? I think the current poor man's way of doing is to use Irish domicile funds to do to run the same playbook, but you still take a certain amount of taxation off. So I think if there's a more direct approach, I think that, that will actually work, right? So there are many, many secrets like this. The power of alternative assets, right? Like most people in our category just put all their money in public markets. But the reality is the private markets now are bigger than public markets in value, right? Aggregated. Right. And there's a lot of categories within that. There's private equity, there's private credit, there's real estate, there's growth funds, there's venture capital. And if you look at an endowment or you look at like, you know, really savvy investors like GIC and others, you'll see that a significant portion of their allocation goes into private markets. And typically it's not happened or it's not been exposed to the regular people because they haven't known about it. They haven't had access. So today when someone comes to ARDA, they can see some of the top tier funds that you would get from any of the private banks. But more interestingly, we brought down the minimums. So instead of having to put a million in, 
you can commit to hundred thousand mm. dollars, right? So then over four or five years, you're basically putting only twenty thousand dollars a year into these vehicles, mm. and so now you can start doing things that you know just were not possible for many people like us in the past. So does it sound like when it's like when Vanguard did the SPY ETF for customers, they lower the fees. The way I would think of Arthur is you're trying to allowing access to more people in order for these type of private banking service that used to be only limited to a few. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So one of the things that's most exciting is you have a lot of investors behind Arthur Finance. Would you want to talk about that? I couldn't get into the round, so. (laughs) (laughs) I I am sorry. I am sorry. I would have loved to have had you in the round. Unfortunately, our angel round got done very, very fast. And funnily enough, we actually did not set out to raise an angel round. As you know, it took us, it took, we wanted to leave Google in a very orderly manner because we love Google. We love what we had built. We have very good relationships. And so we kind of start talking to people over a period of months. And, you know, I left six months after I told people I'm leaving, right? <laughs> and so we slowly were leaving it. As we would have these farewell conversations with people and say, okay, you know, it's time for us to graduate and go do something outside without sort of the mothership. They would be like, how can we help you? And not only did this happen with a number of Google leaders like Eric or Sundar or others, but it also happened with our partners. You know, one of our angel investors is the CEO of MasterCard. And he was somebody we had worked with for many years when we were when I was doing payments. And so there are CEOs of banks who are retired now, who are angels. We have 140 angels over who invested in Arta. But interestingly, all of them are in many ways friends, mentors, you know, deep partners. But what's interesting is for most of them, this mission really resonated because by and large, all of them are professionals. (laughs) They were all people like us, right? So they're your first customers, eh? They were, I mean, right now they all have their family (laughs) offices. They are using Arta. But interestingly, like we would love to, for each of them, they were like, we wish there was an Arta when we were in our 30s. Mm. So that was that was sort of what ended up crystallizing that round. And then, of course, Peak 15, which used to be Sequoia, Southeast yeah. Asia, India, led our seed round and Ribbit and Go2 came in and did our Series A. So <laughs> yeah. we were very fortunate to have you know, great investors. Mm. So I think one of the things about getting startup is always the ups and downs. But I want to just focus on what are the highlights so far for Arthur Finance and so what are some of the like challenges that you didn't expect, but you showed up and then you overcome it? Yeah. I would say in terms of highlights, the biggest highlights have been sort of being able to bring the product to people. So we were in stealth for about a year and a half while we were still sort of figuring things out, building out the infrastructure. And so the first round when we came out, we you know just talked about and the waitlist grew on its own. It was mm. a very significant number of people who went, joined the waitlist. And for us, it was very gratifying because as a new player in financial services, it takes a while to build up that reputation. And the fact that there were a lot of people who are willing to join the waitlist was very heartening. So that was a very big highlight. Opening up the product in November was very exciting. Going, talking to, you know, users, press. Right now, we are going and doing wealth care boot camps mm. in many companies, yeah. in many funds. Those are amazing conversations because at the end, every conversation, you know, you meet these amazing people who are very successful in life who will say like, thank you, I just learned two or three new things. and Yep. That's going to help me in my life. And, you know, at the end of the day, why do we all exist to try to try to feel that validation in life? I think the biggest challenges, to be honest, was that the technology build out in this turned out to be a lot more complicated than we had thought. There's 
a lot of hardcore infrastructural, regulatory, compliance work that has to be put in place before you can even take a single dollar, right? As a wealth manager, KYC, AML, money movement, very basic things have to work perfectly, right? All the compliance pieces, regulatory pieces, security. So there's actually an enormous amount of build out. And so, you know, sometimes people ask me a question like, why hasn't this been done before? Now I know why. It takes a lot of effort, very, very strong engineering team. The vast majority of our team are engineers, very senior engineers from, you know, not just Google, but Facebook, Amazon, Meta, um, you know, incredible backgrounds, a number from banks who've joined us, financial institutions who've joined us. So it took us a while to get the system built out. It's also a highly regulated industry. So we are licensed in the US. You know, we've got in-principle approval in Singapore. We are a licensed insurance agent in multiple states. So over, and each of these takes like six, nine, 12 months in many cases. So mm. all of that setup took us a long time. I would say I was overly optimistic about how fast we'd be able to do it, but I think that is something that all of us entrepreneurs probably suffer a little bit from. But at this point, it's great that it took us maybe six, six to nine extra months to do, but we're now ready and you know we're fully functioning. I think one of the key things for high net worth individuals using private bankers is the question of trust. When it comes to very traditional family offices, they have this very fear about uh, putting their data digitally. I, I think you have a world-class engineer ring team, right? So the question is, how do you assure them like things like cybersecurity, the safeguard of their data? Because you talk about the compliance side, and I'm sure that is actually what is the things that you were trying to build to get to that skill in yeah. order to launch it. So in terms of cybersecurity, look, we've taken some of the lessons we've learned at Google on how to build very, very secure, privacy-preserving um, systems. As I said, you know, we were running Google Pay. We built Google Pay from scratch. Uh, one of my colleagues was uh, built Gmail. Arguably, you have more private data in Gmail than anywhere else, <laughs> right? And it's probably more secure in many ways. But also our exposure to working with the financial industry meant that we could bring in the best practices from banks too. So we've essentially put in all the cybersecurity practices, the systems, the infrastructure that you would get at a big tech and at a big bank, right? And combine those two together. I think this question sometimes comes up with family offices, but I would say not the most modern ones mm. because the reality is in many ways, if you've taken the right decisions and you're choosing the right vendors, you know, you were at Amazon, the amount of resources that a tech company pours into cybersecurity far outweighs anything any individual family officer, large family office can even yep. can invest, right? Mm. So in a way, it's the same reason why we don't put cash under our mattress mm. and we trust the banks with the cash. It's the same way we can, we can run it. One other very important point is our broker dealer and our custodian which is a very key partner for us and somebody who we worked with very closely and supported us over the last couple of years is Bank of New York Mellon. Huh. Bank of New York Mellon is the largest custodian in the world. They have 46, 44 trillion in assets. You know, many countries have all That's their right. wealth on them. So by using, we chose to work with them and, you know, obviously for their sophistication, but to a great extent because of the trust, we felt like this is a place where our money would be safe hmm. and our users' money would be safe. Last and not, not the least, like all my money is in Arda, right? So, you know, our belief, and this is again something that comes from the tech companies, is if you're not using your own product, 
how can you ask anyone else to do it? Yes. So I think now you are based in the US, but you also have some operations that's going to start in Asia Pacific, maybe from Singapore and maybe the, uh, stretching out the rest. How do you think about managing the diverse financial regulatory space on there? And is it going to be like region by region or maybe you also have to wait for maybe they're having things like uh, maturity of digital banking licenses as well? Yeah. So a couple of things. I think we're, we're a dual headquartered company in Singapore and the US. I and three of the other co-founders live in Singapore and five of our co-founders live there. The leadership team is split across uh, mm. Singapore and Asia. Our engineering team is split across the two. So we have operations from a building perspective across both markets. And, you know, Singapore is a very key hub for us. In the long run, as we as we're expanding, we will have to deal with the regulatory and the compliance requirements country by country. And we are set up for that. Mm. So a lot of the technology, as you know, can be fairly consistent across That's in right. terms of enforcements and in terms of securities. But the specifics of the rules matter. So we are stuffed up as a compliance team there. We have a compliance team here. We have the right regulatory. And the as we go market to market, in some markets, in most markets, actually, we'll work with partners who are locally, you know, local banks are regulated, have a deep relationship. So that sort of helps us scale faster mm. and better. And get to get to a get to a you know worldwide distribution without having to necessarily ourselves single-handedly go solve every market. You know we hope to work with partners deeply to be able to do that. Mm. So my traditional closing question then: What does great look like for Heart of Finance? So I think great if you take a long view, say let's twenty years or so. A lot of what we are building doesn't need to be limited just to accredited investors. You know, it should be available to every single person. So in our view, great would be when everyone can find the best place to put their money to work to whatever cause they want. It could be investing. It could be protecting their family. It could be long term. It could be nonprofit. It could be helping a local business. Today in the world, there is Google to find information, right? There's mm -hmm. Amazon to find products. But what about financial opportunities? There is no one place to find financial opportunities. We want to be able to create that for the world where anyone who's looking to put their money to work has a place to put their money to work. And anybody who's looking for help in building whatever business or growing whatever they want to grow is able to meet these people who are looking to put their money to work. Wow, Caesar! it seems like you're taking your next billion opportunity from Google now to the next billion opportunity to worldwide to enable finance for everyone. We are working very hard. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Many thanks for coming on the show. So in closing, I have two quick questions. One, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? I tend to read a lot. I'll give an interesting recommendation, which is I think there's power to reading fiction because fiction helps you create different worlds and mm. live in different worlds in your mind and be able to navigate between those. So, you know, unlike a lot of people who say read fiction, nonfiction, I actually would say read a lot of fiction, science fiction, fantasy tends to be incredible places where you can situate yourself and think about like, what would I have done in this world, right? Where the laws of physics change. That's so right. That's that I find incredibly exciting and something that I found helped me a lot in my life. The second one I would say is something that, you know, I could do a lot better, but we try as a company to do a lot of is just to be grateful. You know, we're all incredibly lucky to be just alive you know, and healthy and to have this opportunity every day I look out and I see myself living and being part of this beautiful city, beautiful country. And I feel extremely fortunate. We get to work on things that we love, you know, with people we like. 
And so that 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 expression of gratitude is something that we try to take very seriously within the company. And that's something also, you know, I would yeah, mm. I think is is a lesson I've learned in life. Okay. So how do my audience find you? Arthur Finance? <laughs> um so I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. Twitter is at Caesar S, LinkedIn Caesar S. On artofinance.com, we you can reach us all the time. And you have a podcast too, right? We have we recently started a po- podcast called Live Long and Prosper. Uh. A lot of our members, we realized, are looking for advice from people who are further along in their ca- careers. Mm. I'm going to come to you soon to, also, to come on sure. to this. We've had a number of, you know, it's very US focused right now. So we have a number of guests who are CPOs of companies. We have the CPO of Pinterest, the previous CPO of Slack. She's a partner at mm. IVP now. CEOs of Cardlytics, CEO of Coda. And just asking them questions about, you know, what have they learned in life and what would they have done differently 20 years back if they had all the wisdom they have now <laughs> at that time. That's very, very interesting. So for all of you, you can find the podcast, our podcast in YouTube, everywhere else now. And of course, sign up for our newsletter and we have a, the newsletter also in LinkedIn as well. So Caesar, thank many thanks for coming on the show and let's continue to talk. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.